0: Welcome back to The Table Conversations on Youth Justice. I'm your host, Hussein Hadrian. I'm so excited to share this final episode of The Table Conversations on Youth Justice with you. This season has been a really amazing journey. I think we started in episode one with a topic that I thought was difficult. I thought it was complicated to understand. It was the role of fear in policymaking, how when things happen in a community, folks respond the community responds and how should that affect the way that we make policies in the juvenile justice system in our second episode we talked about juvenile public defense and how michigan is one of those states that ranks at the very bottom in terms of uh, access to counsel for kids in episode three we talked to uh, we talked to tom Laddig about what the juvenile justice system looks like at the local level what decisions communities have to make about the juvenile justice system, and budgets, and how to pay for different types of services. Episode four, we talked about the reality of legislative advocacy with Jennifer Peacock, how to effectively advocate for policy change in Lansing, what that means in terms of relationships, in terms of knowing your stuff, how to handle nerves. In episode five, we talked to Josh Rovner about diverting youth from the juvenile justice system, can we divert kids before the arrest? What happens when they're already in court? Is there a way we can divert them at that point? And how important that how important diversion is in the juvenile justice system and how it can really affect outcomes for kids. In episode six, we talked to Jason Smith, MCYJ's executive director, and we talked to Judge Karen Braxton, who's a judge in Wayne County. We talked about a few different topics in that in that episode, including folks considering juvenile justice as a career. What does that mean? How did Jason and Judge Braxton arrive at juvenile justice as what uh, as what they do, and what kind of person should work in juvenile justice? They also shared some unique challenges that they face as a result of this work. And then in episode seven, we talked about waiver into the adult system, what it means for a kid to be charged as an adult, how we can how we can change how often it happens, and what factors should be considered. Before a kid is charged as an adult. These are really important topics and they all relate to the uh, the Juvenile Justice Task Force that released its recommendations last summer. This season, we've broken down the big categories of those recommendations. Today, I want to share a couple of different things with you. First, we'll talk about a few updates on MCYJ's work and what's happened in the legislature. And then I want to share some outtakes with you. Now, these interviews that I've worked on, one of the hardest parts of making this podcast is finding out what to cut because our uh, interview subjects are very knowledgeable and they talk about a lot of different topics and they have deep insight into each of those topics. And so it's difficult to cut out one of their answers or to cut out one of my questions because each uh, offers so much perspective. But For one reason or the other, whether it was time or whether it was the topic of the episode, we had to cut a few answers, a few stories, anecdotes, jokes. And so I want to share a few of those with you today. And they're not going to be in any particular order or on any particular topic, but hopefully they'll inspire you to research something. Hopefully they'll inspire you to look into some aspect of the juvenile justice system for just a second longer, because it's that kind of curiosity that will really give you insight into how Michigan's juvenile justice system works. We might explore some of those topics in future episodes if we continue the podcast. And if there's a topic you'd like us to cover, we'd love it if you wrote in. But first, we're going to talk about updates on MCYJ's work. Here is Jennifer Peacock.
1: 2023 has been a big year for this legislation and juvenile justice reform at large. I wanted to give you a brief summary of where we've been alongside our partners and also what to look out for as you follow the work. So we'll dig into Michigan State House first. So the bills were introduced in May and have been called the Justice for Kids and Communities Package. It's a total of 20 bills that are rooted in the recommendations by the bipartisan Juvenile Justice Reform Task Force. You can always find that report on our website. As a reminder, these bills call to increase the child care fund, eliminate a majority of juvenile fines and fees, and expand access to juvenile defense and appellate services, among a lot of other really great reforms. Following introduction, the bills, which are numbered House Bills 4624, through 4643 received an overview hearing of the package in full and within the House Criminal Justice Committee. We were so fortunate to have a variety of speakers come to really voice their support including former task task force members and local leadership. We were then super thrilled to see that there was a hearing I'm be invited to speak at a hearing on House Bills 4634 through 4637. And this is the fines and fees legislation sort of package of bills within it, right? And so I was very fortunate to have the opportunity to speak alongside some of the sponsors, including Representative Hope, who is also the chair of the House Criminal Justice Committee, and Representative Devendorf, for us all to really share how critical this legislation is for our youth and their families. House Bills 4638 through 4643, which calls to expand the role of the Office of the Child Advocate, also known as the Children's Ombudsman, received a hearing. So as a reminder, this legislation really calls for an independent ombudsman for handling, investigating, and reporting incidences in facilities. So that's sort of your House recap what we've accomplished so far in the movement that's happened there. We'll sort of jump on over to the Senate side. So the same bill package, which is numbered as Senate Bill 0418 through 0437, has been introduced as of June and has been referred to the Civil Rights, Judiciary, and Public Safety Committee. Earlier this year, that same committee did receive a sort of broad task force overview, and it also included highlights of these legislative priorities. Now you can check out the full legisl- legislative breakdown of the bills on our website, along with some letters that you can actually complete to share your support for this work. At MCYJ, we're just really thrilled to see how many folks both in and outside of the legislature, are prioritizing these reforms looking ahead, we're really hopeful to see more movement, including hearings in early to mid-fall. If you are seeking ways you can get involved, please always feel free to reach out to our team. We would always love to share ways that you can deepen your involvement in support of juvenile justice reform in the state of Michigan. I also really want to stress our gratitude to the many partners who have shared testimony, their time, and their resources to really get the word out about these bills. Now, if you don't already, please make sure you follow us on social media and sign up for our newsletter to get the most up-to-date information about the Justice for Kids and Communities package. I'm really excited to update you on the on the rest of the work this fall.
0: Welcome back. For our first clip, I want to share part of our conversation with Judge Karen Braxton. The part of the interview that I personally found most impactful was the part where she talked about being an elected official and being a judge, because judges hold a very specific role in our society. They sit up on a bench, call them your honor and all that, and they wear robes. It's really very separated from the average person. And so I asked her how that affects her work, the fact that she's an elected official and the fact that she you know, holds this position. How does that change the way that she approaches her work? This is what she told us. Is there something, is there a unique challenge that comes with being an elected and, you know, interfacing with the community like that? Or do you find it to be empowering in your job that you have to answer to the people like that rather than just being like a bureaucrat or like an administrator of some kind?
2: It's empowering. Um, One of my, my tagline on social media is beyond the bench. And the reason I've chosen that is because um what I do on the bench is very important. I have a job, they've elected me to do this and I get paid to do it. So I should probably do it and do it well. But the other part of my job is to be in the community and make myself available to people in the community that have that I hope will re-elect me um, yet again. And I'm up again next year. So um, it's interesting that you asked that question. But um, for me, it's an opportunity to come off of this little perch we call a bench to interact with people that we serve. And we are here to serve the citizens of Wayne County. Um, I love that experience. It humbles me. It gives me perspective on how people view the bench, which is not always positive, but it gives me an opportunity to change that narrative about sitting judges as well. If I am able to sit with them in any environment Um, for whatever reason, be it a juvenile justice task force, is it a community meeting, or sometimes I'm hanging out with some kids at a picnic, because with some jeans on, and they're throwing water balloons at me, um, just to give them that experience that judges are humans, and my job just happens to be a judge, but I'm just a regular person, I always tell people, call me Karen, unless we're on the record, Um, I'm just Karen, and I think The public needs to understand that I'm Karen, that I'm a mom, that I'm an aunt, I'm a daughter. There's so many other things that make up who I am. And judge happens to be somewhere near the bottom. And it's just a small part of who Karen is. So that community aspect for me is everything. Um, And without it, honestly, I don't know that I would be the type of judge that I am today.
0: For these next two clips, I want to share... uh... The part where we talked about consensus. Now, we've talked about the Juvenile Justice Task Force over and over and over again this season, but one of the things that's always stuck out to me about the Juvenile Justice Task Force is how there were so many people from all sorts of different backgrounds, and I encourage you, if you don't know, to look at the press release uh, that I'll link in the show notes uh, that lists all of the members, and you'll see just from the you know the backgrounds that folks have that there is going to be intense disagreement in this room. But then you look at the actual the the outcomes of the, the juvenile justice task force, the recommendations, and most of them are either unanimous or they're by consensus. And I think that that is really interesting. It's actually, I think, a great feat. And so we asked Judge Braxton and Jason about how that happened and what the you know, how to get folks on the same page, what what's challenging about that and what is left to do in juvenile justice that we couldn't get agreement on here's what they said y'all mostly i think uh, created unanimous recommendations or like the vast majority of you were agreeing to each one which you know it's hard enough to get folks to agree on what to get for dinner and <laughs> y'all are <laughs> was there was there anything uniquely challenging about talking to folks from such diverse backgrounds or was it do you think that that was um that that was easier that was like more helpful
2: Oh, no. So Wayne County is an anomaly. Um, so it was very difficult to talk to people in other counties because of sheer volume alone. Some of the things that other counties are able to do just because of our numbers, it's more difficult for us to do. Uh, how I took it back to the court or our court was these, these are challenges that we have. So it's not an impossibility. It is something it's a hurdle. And that's uh, something that it's meant to get over. Um, our Seeing the differences allowed me to also see the positive things that we are doing in Wayne County as well. Um, the hard thing about seeing something that looks different than you is one accepting that there is something different, but more important is still finding something that you can meet up on the same page. So all of us came together and you, like you said, how most of us probably couldn't have picked lunch if they told us to pick lunch for our final meeting. Um, but we all had a common goal. And so we stopped focusing on our differences, even though we stayed there for a minute, we stopped focusing on our differences at some point. And we said, hey, our common goal is doing what's best for the children that come into care or the children that we are trying to prevent from coming into the JJ system. And when we started focusing on that, yes, we sat at that very last meeting and I believe all of them were unanimous in the end, we figured out how to make it narrow enough to be helpful, but broad enough to make it beneficial for every court within the state to have that flexibility to make some adjustments based on the needs in that particular area or that particular county. So it was, it was a little rough in the beginning, um, but I think it's probably like a sibling relationship when you're younger, you fight more, and then as you get older and more mature and you respect each other, then you're able to actually form some really great relationships. And that's what I was able to do with the Juvenile uh, Justice Task Force.
3: Well, for one, I thought um, the Council for State Governments, who facilitated uh, the entire task force process, they did an excellent job, again, of, of empowering folks and bring and making sure that it was a data-informed uh, conversation the best they could with the, the limited data that we have. One of the, the coolest things, I thought, was that they held uh, listening sessions uh, with uh family members uh I think both youth and parents who were involved with the juvenile justice system that I I I really felt like opened the eyes of folks of of their perspective of of what worked and and what didn't and it wasn't you know the 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 families who participated did such a good job they knew what their their mission was like no one came in with just a straight attitude to bash the system or bash the system stakeholders they were honest when they said a judge helped me you know or gave my kid a chance, or when they felt like they were treated unfairly, or when treatment was beneficial, or when it wasn't, you know, and I think that led, uh, you know, this is just my assumption, but uh, a lot of the justice stakeholders to realize that there is a benefit from listening to uh, the people who are directly involved with the system, you know, their experiences can help uh shape the system uh, so that it's it, it's more effective and, and uh, better in, in serving the young people and the families that come in contact with it so that was the the thing that I thought uh was the most interesting and and, and really like stood stood out to me um you know I, I think we we got a sense um, from uh, a lot of the conversations both in the in the large uh voting member group and the in the individual work groups, of where there could be consensus around things like uh, changing the the funding structure for for juvenile justice to support more community-based care over uh, detention and, and residential placement, um, expanding diversion, um, uh, improving juvenile defense, things like that. I think that you know the discussions really brought out you know that that there's a lot of shared. Uh, goals for improving the system. And where there wasn't, you know, not all, like you said, not all of the recommendations were consensus um, or unanimous. Um, Most of them were majority supported, but uh, not all unanimous. I think we have an understanding of where there needs to be additional work to get folks, uh, more folks on board with uh, some of those recommendations that were uh, a bit more contentious. Um, You know, I, I realized where there needs to be more public education, on particular issues, um, where there needs to be more data and research to help uh, drive decision making around different items, both the things that were voted on unanimously and the things that weren't. Um, so I just think that like it, it it, it allowed us everyone to see uh, folks laid their cards on the table basically where where what and what they believe uh, is working and what's not in the juvenile justice system, and I think that you will see not only MCYJ but a lot of the, uh, the stakeholders that participated, you know, act, you know, respond to that uh, uh, going forward uh, based on those conversations.
0: I also asked Josh Rovner from the Sentencing Project about how to get people on board about juvenile justice. Now, one of the unique things about the issue of juvenile justice is that folks from all different backgrounds, political and otherwise, can connect with juvenile justice because a lot of folks have kids. And if they don't, they've been kids. They know kids. And it's very, very intuitive that kids should be treated differently from adults in the juvenile justice system. And so he has been able to connect with a lot of people that maybe disagreed with him vehemently on other issues in other areas. And personally, I found that very challenging in our work, having to deal with folks that we disagreed with. But... When it works, when folks that we disagree with come on board, it can be really fruitful. And so here's Josh talking a little bit about how that dynamic works and how to handle it.
4: You know, you get a bill passed by getting 51% of the votes, and you just have to figure out where those 51% are going to come from. And there's definitely people that you meet with who you walk away from the conversation and you think I'll put you down as a no. And then I do my best to forget about those people. I would say the bigger problem that I have as someone who cares about a lot of issues is discovering that your friends on this issue are horrific on other issues. Our um, champion in one state on a, on a bill that we were working on strongly opposed to something that I agree with in other sections of my life. And then Googling that legislator and learning what else they were working on, that was hard. To be complimentary of our champion on this issue when I see that they are a villain on other issues, that's hard Um, because I don't wanna see that person get reelected despite the fact that they're good on this particular one. Um, So I think that that's just politics of recognizing that you make your friends where you can, but they're also temporary friends. You know, there's this line from Harry Truman, if you want a friend in Washington, get a dog. You know, like every, every relationship you have politically is a temporary relationship and one of convenience. They need us and we need them in one way or another. Uh, I find that the advocates in this field are like the greatest people that I've really come upon. And so that's where you're able to have a really good conversation because everyone's gone through this themselves. And so that to find your friends, because they're everywhere on this stuff. It's part of the reason why the coalition's work is because we just need to support each other and, and our group texts and our, you know, the frustrations that you share is part of the work to recognize that What can you say? You need that 51% of the vote. And that's, that's how you're going to get there.
0: As we close out this episode, I want to first of all, thank you all for listening to this one. I'm glad that we were able to share some of them with you all. But most importantly, I want to thank you for being listeners of this show. Now this show would be nothing without our listenership. And I really appreciate anyone that has taken the time to share our podcast with others on social media or personally. It really goes a long way. Now, it's been my voice for the most part. right? It's been me or Gabrielle Dresner, who used to be our host, uh, and then our guests. But I want to incorporate community voices. If we ever do this in the future, if this podcast carries on, we'd love to hear from you. And so please write in. Please contact us. Follow us on social media. Share our podcast with other people. I know I ask for that endlessly, but really, this project is important. And it's going to be a critical part of changing the conversation about youth justice. Look, MCYJ will be around always. We'll continue to find ways to deliver stories like this, whether it's through a future season of this podcast, our newsletter, our social media, we will continue to share these stories and we're going to continue doing the work. So find a way to stay connected and find a way to stay involved. And that's our show today. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you have questions, don't hesitate to write in. For more information about the podcast and the show notes from this episode, check out our show page at miyouthjustice.org forward slash the table.